0: Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Heather, for leading us this evening. Uh, On Sunday nights here at Windsor, we have been kind of retelling David's story and just letting the narrative, in a sense, uh, speak for itself. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we came to the end of of 1 Samuel chapter 20, uh, and we left David on the run King Saul is, is determined to kill him. And that's become, way, echoey. That's become increasingly apparent. And, and, and Jonathan, who is Saul's son and David's close friend, he has kind of facilitated David's survival to date and has actually helped him in his most recent escape. And, and, and Jonathan's last words to David, and we looked at this two weeks ago were these, go in peace and although everything in in David's world seemed to be a million miles from peaceful it was in a real state of flux Jonathan had made this covenant and if if you've been part of this journey you'll know this but Jonathan had made this covenant with David and therefore as a result of that covenant that he had made with David David could go in peace there was peace between them, and that meant the world to David. And last time round, if you were here, you, re- you might remember us making the point that, that as a result of, of the new covenant, this kind of new agreement that has been made between us and God, and we've been, we've been celebrating that and remembering that, and Heather read there a moment ago that this is the new covenant in my blood. And so as a result of jesus we can have peace we can go in peace despite the fact that actually for many of us life feels a bit chaotic or it feels in turmoil a bit upside down but because of this covenant that god has made with us in jesus we can know peace If you have a Bible, uh, please turn with me to 1 Samuel 21, and and we're going to kind of pick up the story again. That's where we we left it, and as we often do here at Windsor, we we stand for the public reading of God's Word, and so we're going to do that. It's page 293 in the Pew Bibles, and, and I would encourage you to follow along here. So please, do stand with me. Let's take a bit of time to read this rather strange part of the story. David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, No one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what have you to hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever you can find. But the priest answered, David, I don't have any ordinary bread to hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's things are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or sword here? I haven't brought my sword Or any other weapon, since the king's business was urgent, the priest replied, "The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one." David said, "There is none like it. Give it to me." That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, "Isn't this David, the king of Israel, or the king of the land?" isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish king of Gath. So he feigned insanity in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, look at the man, he is insane. Why bring him to me? And am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Grab a seat. It's bizarre. And, and in some ways, this, this is a pretty tragic episode in, in the story. And as I say, all we're doing here in this series is telling the story and david appears to be on his own at this point there's no jonathan there's no Michal, his his wife who had helped him avoid saul's assassination squad and there's no samuel the prophet whom he has been in contact with on more than on one occasion it's, it's just david by himself now or so it seems And he's in a really vulnerable place. And so he's reduced to telling lies and begging for food and borrowing weapons. This is one of the kind of lesser known low points of David's story. And David runs to this place, Nob, and, and he finds his way to a priest. And down through the years, people on the run And those in trouble, they often head in that direction to a priest. Maybe not so much now, but that was once where many people ran. And David finds a priest, but this priest's reaction to him is really interesting. Did you notice? He trembles when he meets David. Why? Could it be that that David's reputation's gone before him? The word is out. David is a fugitive. His breakdown in relationship with the king may have filtered through the region. And so maybe this priest is slightly nervous that if he is seen with David, that he'll be guilty by association. But whatever the reason, Ahimelech is unsettled. And he wonders, David, why are you here by yourself? David then comes up with a rather flimsy cover story. It's complete nonsense, actually. I'm on the king's business. No, you're not, David. You're on the run. So he says, I'm on the king's business, which maybe is, you could say, he's still in the king's service. We don't know for sure has he received his kind of P45, because he did once serve the king. But whatever's going on here, this, this is not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. In the last chapter, if you were here two weeks ago, David got Jonathan to lie for him. Now, David's lying for himself. Now, some people argue that, that, that David was sort of spinning the story to protect Ahimelech. I, I don't buy that. <laughs> Whatever we think about David's behavior here, there's no comment in the text that condemns it or justifies it. Dale Ralph Davis offers this interesting passing thought on this. He says, the Bible would prove a boring tome if in every suspense-filled narrative it turned aside to provide moral, ethical evaluations. (laughs) It'd be interesting to kind of pause and discuss that. But we don't have time and I would be scared to. But what we can say with a certain degree of confidence is that the text, it reports David's conduct, but it doesn't mean it recommends it. Plus, as the story unfolds, we'll discover that David actually has a bit of a crisis of conscience by the time we get to the end of chapter 22. So back to chapter 21, verse 2. David asks Ahimelech for five loaves of bread for him and his men. And Ahimelech offers him bread, only it's not ordinary bread. The only bread that's at hand is the consecrated kind, the bread of the presence, as it's called in verse 6. And Ahimelech says, listen, see if I'm going to give this bread to you, I need to ask a rather personal question. Have any of your men recently slept with a woman. Turns out they they haven't. Or at least according to David, they haven't. But do we believe him? So Ahimelech gives David the bread. And it's actually, it's an incredible moment in this story. Because surely it conveys something kind of beyond the raw data and information. Here's Pete Wilcox's comment on this moment. So Ahimelech is tricked into providing David with food, and and not just any food, the bread of the presence, symbolic somehow of the Lord's blessing upon David, even in these compromised circumstances. The holy bread becomes David's daily bread. Provided by a gracious God. And God sustains and supplies David's need. Even though you could argue he he doesn't deserve this. But then again, where would any of us be if we only got what we deserved? One other interesting aspect of, of this story is that, you know, this is the only part of the narrative of David ...that is taken up by Jesus. Many of you will know this. If you flick over to Matthew 12... ...you'll find that the Pharisees... ...are challenging Jesus about the behaviour of his disciples. They were collecting food to eat on the Sabbath. They they were picking ears of corn... ...in the Sabbath. And, And how did Jesus respond? Look at verse 3 of Matthew 12. Haven't you read what David did... ...when he and his companions were hungry? he entered the house of God and he and his companions ate consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do. Now, whatever else was going on around that incident in Matthew 12, the very fact that Jesus refers to what happened at Nob in these terms appears to exonerate David at some level. So David receives his daily bread. And so we pray, give us this day our daily bread, even though none of us deserves it. Back to the story. On Samuel twenty one, seven. There's this kind of aside that there's someone called Doeg the Edomite who is there that day. That's all it says, apart from the fact that he that he's Saul's shepherd. And then the story moves on. It's really important that we lodge that name and that detail. Because you see, the next time he turns up in the story, it's sinister and incredibly disturbing. David then asks for a weapon. And would you believe it? But Ahimelech says, the only sword in the place is guess which one? It's none other than Goliath's sword. Do you remember the one that you killed in the valley? I've got that sword here. David says, yeah, give me that one. And he takes it. And so David leaves Ahimelech the priest, supplied with two things, bread and the sword. The two resources he most needed at this particular moment in time. And without reading too much into this or pushing it too far, but at various points of scripture, bread and a sword are symbolic of spiritual strength. So, for example, what is the word of God compared to? Bread. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And therefore you could argue. And you do wonder. Did, did David actually leave that place. Renewed in his sense of the presence of God. Bread and sword in hand. Sustained. Equipped. Nourished. And strengthened. And so are we meant to, to kind of look beyond the mere facts of this story at this point And realize and remember. Do you know something? God is still at the very heart of this. I've got lots of questions about what's going on here. I don't understand why David has been able to lie his way through this situation and be given these two resources. But it seems that that God's at the center of it all, that God is in control. That although it doesn't always make sense from a human perspective, God is working out his purposes in his time and in his ways because at the end of the day, God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are high above. And so what God chooses to do and how God chooses to accomplish his purposes in his people's lives is is up to God. And are we also meant to pause and recall that we have been and continue to be fed and strengthened by our spiritual daily bread, and by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that actually we leave here tonight with those same resources in our hands. Bread. The sword. Therefore, we can be sustained and equipped and nourished and strengthened. David, then does something pretty weird and actually quite dumb. He heads for Gath, it says, in verse 10, which is not only Philistine country, but it's also Goliath's hometown. And here he wanders into it with Goliath's sword. And he makes his way to see the king of Gath, A-Kish. It says David's quickly recognized. A-Kish's servants say, is this not David the king of the land? This is the first time someone has actually referred to David as a king. Is this not David the king of the land? And is this not the one that, that all those singers and dancers are going on about? And whenever David hears that, fear kicks in. And he resorts to pretense. He pretends to be stark raving mad. And so it says he starts clawing at the doorways. And he starts slabbering. Not as in Northern Ireland. Slabbering but as in saliva. Running down his beard. <laughs> and it says that Akish, that he, He's got enough kind of crazy people running about according to verse 15 he says don't i have enough madmen around me get this one out of my sight and so david's on the run again now you can kind of quickly read those last five verses breathe a sigh of relief and reckon right david's lucky to get out of that one with his life still intact But you see, to leave it at that, it would be to miss a fascinating insight and perspective. Because in Psalm 34, we find David's own response in the wake of this fiasco at Gath. You you could read 1 Samuel 21, 10 to 15, and wonder, listen, what was the point of that? Like seriously, what was the point of that part of the story? Can anything good come out of that bit? I mean, here's David being foolish, Desperate, He's confused. But as one writer comments, is this not exactly the stuff that Psalms are made of? So let me take a quick look at Psalm 34, if you want to turn to it. Because in this Psalm, we discover David's actual state of mind. If you look at the top of the Psalm in, in certain Bibles, I'm not sure if it's in your Bible, but here's how Psalm 34 is headed. Off David... When he pretended to be insane before... and it says Abimelech. Biblical commentators and, and, and people who are into this and really study this reckon that, that, that that's the same as Achish. It's, a, it's another term, another name for Achish. So this is off David. When he pretended to be insane before Achish, who drove him away and he left. And what you find here is this amazing psalm of Praise. And even how it starts is incredible. Because remember, you've you've got to consider what's going on in David's life. I mean, he's just pretended to be a madman. The threat, the danger, the turmoil, the upheaval, the sense of fear and uncertainty. And how does David react to this? I will praise the Lord. Not just on this occasion, but here's a a statement of resolve. I will praise the Lord at all times. And then he invites the afflicted, those who are helpless, to join him. Join me. Join me in praising the Lord. And David, just scan down this with me. David has been through the mill. Verses 4 to 7 provide some insight into his circumstances without going into the specifics. He refers to fears. We read a minute ago that when he heard those people saying, is this not David the king of the land? Is this not the one everybody's singing about? It says he was gripped by fear. He was afraid. And he refers to his fears here. He refers to his troubles. But then he celebrates what God has done. Verse 4, God has answered And delivered. Verse 6, God has heard me, saves. Verse 7, He encamps around and delivers. And in a very real sense, and this is often the point of the Psalms, what David's doing is, here's my experience, and this can be yours as well. And if you're here this evening and life as a child of God feels a bit mad, it's a bit out of sync, or you're really afraid, Or you're in trouble. Then instead of of turning away from God. Or instead of opting for silence. Why not grab hold of this psalm and say it. And pray it. And sing it. Listen to David's encouragement in verse 8 there. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Think about this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Like, I'm on the run here. I'm having to pretend to be mad. I'm having to lime away to things. I'm having to beg for food, borrow weapons, taste and see that the Lord is good. (laughs) See, David had glimpses of God's goodness. Yes, he has this bread and he has this sword. But as he scratched door frames and as he let saliva run down his beard, How how could he say, taste and see, the Lord is good? Why? Well, the complete verse 8. Because blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And if you've been following this series, that, that idea of God being a refuge is a recurring thought and reality. Here's what David has already prayed during this story, if you were here a few weeks ago. This was part of the David story. Again, another psalm written at this time. You're my fortress, God. You're my refuge in times of trouble. You are my strength. I sing to you. God, you are my fortress. My God on whom I can rely. And so, wherever you're at this evening, however this week has been, whatever the week ahead looks like, let me encourage you to run. Run. Keep running, but run and take refuge in God. Run to him for cover. Discover his presence, his protection, his care in the midst of mess and mayhem. Not from it. Said it before, you are my refuge in trouble. Not from it, in it. Embrace David's example and his model here. Join him in singing, join him in praying, even though there may be trouble ahead and you're wondering what is around the next corner, God. So David is still on the run, nearly done. And his next stop, as we discover as we come into chapter twenty two, have a look at it. First Samuel, we're back to first Samuel. David's next stop is a cave. And certain subsequent events are are going to be pretty grim, but you know something? Don't forget this. David still intends to praise the Lord at all times. Which is a challenge, but you know something? It's also a privilege. And it's a source of hope and perspective. Word now gets to David's family. Word, David's hiding. And, like any family would do, whenever they discover that one of their own is in trouble, they come and join him. It's an incredible part of the story again. David's entire family show up at this cave. But not just David's family, a whole pile of others turn up as well. But a very specific type of others. Have a look at this. Verse 2. The distressed, those in debt. The discontent gather around David. 400 men at least. A community of the dispossessed. A community of the marginalized. Here are the have-nots all together. And what is their headquarters? It's a cave. You see, the contrast between Saul and David is stark. And David's pressing concern at this moment in time is the welfare of his mum and dad. This is a beautiful part of the story. And so what does David do? It says here he goes to a local king. And he says, listen, can my mum and dad stay with you? Life in a cave, life on the run, surrounded by this bunch of riffraff, This is not the best environment for elderly parents. And so David organizes for them to stay in an early care home. I'm I'm sure there's some lesson in that particular detail for us. But the phrase at the end of verse 3 is insightful. Here's what he says. I want you to look after my mum and dad. Until I learn what God will do for me. Do not miss that phrase until I learn what God would do for me. You see, David is confident that his future and whatever it holds is in God's hands. Yeah, I'm going to be king one day. Remember, ages ago, Samuel anointed this guy, said you're going to be the next king of Israel. But that hasn't happened yet. And in fact, all there has been in between then and now is mess and mayhem. <coughs> so when that's going to happen, how that's going to happen is anyone's guess. But for now, David's trusting. David's waiting. None of us know our future. But we do know, do know who holds it. You see, so much of the life of faith is about trusting and waiting. We can and we should make specific plans, maybe particularly regarding those we have responsibility for. But for a lot of the time, most of us are called to just wait and just trust. And neither of those things is easy. And then a prophet called Gad Appears from nowhere. And he instructs David to move on. You see, here is God continuing to speak into David's life. God, or Gad, God, God, God doesn't tell him everything. He just tells him enough. He says, Listen, you've got to go. David, you've got to go. Don't stay here. Go to the land of Judah. And what does David do? He obeys, and, and that's our responsibility. See, God rarely tells us everything regarding what's next in one fell swoop. But he says enough at the right time to enable us to take the next step. What we do with God's word whenever it comes to us, well, that, that, that's our challenge. Do we obey it? Or do we ignore it? David here chooses the former. And then we come to the next distressing scene. Because you see, Saul gets word of David's whereabouts somehow. He makes a few inquiries, and eventually Doeg, the Edomite, reappears and spills the beans. And to cut a long story short, Saul dispatches Doeg to go and kill all around him. And so he does just that. He assassinates 85 priests, plus men, women, children, infants, oxen, donkeys, sheep. It's a scene of butchery and of annihilation. Below 85 priests are killed. One survives. Abathar. He escapes with his life. He runs to David. And get this. David accepts responsibility for what's just happened. This is amazing. Verse 22. I knew on that day. When Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, Get this, I, I am responsible for the lives of all your father's house. It's my fault. It's my fault that all those people have been killed. It seems that David's sense is do you know something? It was my lying at the beginning of chapter 21 that set this whole disastrous course of events in motion. It's been said that sin is expensive, that it's a rare thing to get away with it. And there is no doubt that by grace we don't always face the full consequences of our poor choices. But by and large, do you know something? There is a reckoning. David, David intentionally lied and the consequences were extreme. Do not underestimate the kickback of sin. It can easily cause a cascade of consequences. Rarely as far-reaching and as horrible as this, although even that is debatable in certain situations. David stands before this priest and says, it's it's my fault. I take responsibility. And you know, we all need to do that when necessary. And this chapter in the story actually finishes at this point on, on a note of hope. Because having acted badly, David now acts well. Because he says to Abathard, don't be afraid. Let me offer you sanctuary. You see, we can't turn the clock back. But we should own up to our mistakes and do what we can to help those who have been hurt via our sinful and poor choices. And so David... We leave him at this point of the story still on the run, still in exile, still wondering what's around the next corner, but here's the critical thing. David's now looking to God and he's taking responsibility for his actions and that is always a good place to be. Let's pray. God, again, I just want to thank you for your word. I thank you for the the richness of it, for the stories we read, for the twists and turns, the highs and lows, the moments when we are left silent, moments when we do not understand what is going on, and yet all of this is useful and can teach us something and can train us and can rebuke us. And so, God, as we have engaged with your word, I pray that you would continue to speak. Thank you that we have it. Bread, a sword. We have, like God, the word of God accessible to us. And it is our call to either obey or ignore. And for anyone here who recognises that they have made some poor choices and it has set in motion certain consequences. Then God I pray that you would give us the strength, the ability to face up to those choices. And to look to you to see what you're going to do next in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Close. Kind of picking up on the theme that Heather so helpfully led us through. All, he, all heaven declares. And that lamb upon the throne before whom we gladly bow the knee and worship him alone. Let's stand together as we sing to close.